Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and today, a walk through the gardens by the bay in Singapore with the Chief Executive Officer, Felix Lowe. <laughs> Forgive me, La Trobe is on the east coast of Australia, right? Yeah, down yeah. in Melbourne. Oh, okay, in Melbourne. No. We, uh, a lot of these plants uh, come from uh, Brisbane, you know, the whole area. We, we're quite uh, familiar with that. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, now, a visitor to Singapore can't help but notice just how green and vibrant the city is. And as Felix is keen to explain, this is all part of intentional, careful planning. Felix is a horticulturalist by trade. He shows me around the greenhouse of the gardens by the bay to explain to me more about the greening of the city. We are right now seated in Flower Dome, the largest greenhouse in the world. The dome is part of the larger gardens by the bay and uh, the total hectare is uh, 101 hectares, uh, three gardens in one. So we are now currently in Bay South, the future downtown of Singapore. And uh, if we go back to history, this place where I'm seated uh, 50 years back is uh, seawater. So this is actually reclaimed land. Singapore is a small little city, about 600 square kilometers, 5 million population uh, located in it. So land is always a premium. So I think our founding father, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, in the 60s and 70s uh, had a land reclamation project. And so this part of downtown was reclaimed outwards. The land was left um, in a way fallow as a green lung for almost uh, maybe 30, 40 years. And then 2004, at that time, in this part of the world, we had another pandemic. If uh, you recall, that was a SARS. And I think the uh, economy was affected somewhat. And the government at that time needed to kickstart the economy. And so one of the ideas was that um, uh, we will activate this piece of reclaimed which is seated at the southern tip of Singapore, adjacent to the current downtown. So walking through Singapore, it is a very green city. There's, there's lots of plants and greenery everywhere uh, to the extent where everywhere you go there's shade, which I valued quite a lot today. Is that part of the planning and, and built into the structure of the city, is it? Yeah, so in, in, in the 60s, Mr. Lee, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, we affectionately call him, uh, our MM, is well known. If we go back in time, he founded what we call a garden city. He didn't want when Singapore one day will, will become a successful city in his view, but he doesn't want it a successful city without a soul. Make up of harsh buildings and concrete jungle, and so he, he decided to uh, have a garden city. I think Mr. Lee uh, knew that the first impression is very important when the investors come into the country. So from the, if you come from the Changi Airport right to the city, you will see these neatly rows of uh, planted trees. Uh, with neat rows of bougainvillea shrubs, almost in military position. In actual fact, he wrote in his memoirs, he used that to sell quite effectively to investors that when they come in, first thing, they see these neat rows of trees and bougainvilleas and if they can, if this country can take care of greenery, they can take care of my money. And of course, they say the rest is history. In fact, uh, many other cities subsequently come and study us and some even replicate that you know, from the airport and they use the same rain tree and bougainvilleas. So that was quite successful. Underlying that though, there's got to be a biodiversity angle as well. Environmental sustainability was not even in fashion in that time, 1960s, 70s. Uh, but Mr. Lee um, uh, is a very green person uh, ahead of his time. Uh, I think he understood that Singapore is island. I mean, rising seawater and you know, climate change, all this uh, will have an impact. So planting trees uh, also part of the environmental strategy of biodiversity. 
And I think over the years, in fact, uh, Garden City has gone through several layers of upgrades, I would call it. We started with Garden City and subsequently it was a city in the garden. We built the garden first, original Eden, and then after that built a city in it. Yeah. And then uh, from city in the garden, now I call it, it's already a 3.0, now it's city in nature, uh, where I think huge parts of the country is now interconnected with greenery and native uh, species and plantings. I think the next mile going forward is environmental sustainability and the path towards net zero. That's, I think, the direction that the country is moving to. And in a way, Guns by the Way, uh, Mr. Lee wanted that this will be a showcase, essentially encapsulating uh, 50 years of our Garden City know-how from roadside greenery, which you talk about, sky-rise greenery, planting on rooftop, conservation of nature areas as well as streetscape, various showcase plantings that make Singapore what it is today. So you said that this is on reclaimed land. Uh, how does Gardens by the Bay exist in the current ecosystem? Does it interact at all with the local waterways and does that create a challenge at all with managing yeah. the plants you have yeah, here? That's a, that's a good question. I think the pioneers of Gardens by the Bay when it was built, conceived and planned 15 years ago, uh, in a way they foresaw a future where environmental sustainability will be a hot button issue. And so at that time, in fact, the domes where we are in, as well as surrounding garden, is planned with environmental principles in mind. Land tour, the wind channels are all properly studied to ensure that this garden, in terms of biodiversity, will not become a minus. To be fair, I mean, 50 years ago, this was seawater. Then after we reclaim, and we actually do quite detailed uh, studies on the wildlife that's coming back. And in fact, the bird species survey that has started even before this place was constructed, still continues to today, and we measure it quite uh, closely, monitor it, to ensure the number of species of birds and wildlife that thrive on this place has not gone down. In fact, since the gardens was built, it is now double uh, in terms of bird life, something that we are quite proud of. At the same time, the gardens itself is uh, next to the bay. So in fact, at the river mouth, it's been dammed up, and the rest of inland has been converted into a reservoir and uh, the water actually gets pumped into the garden and uh, there's a series of biofilters using aquatic plants that actually sort of filters the water and get pumped back up which becomes drinking water. Mm. A lot of careful thought has also gone into uh, designing different species. In fact, we have one of the largest uh, palm collection uh, in the world. In terms of taxa or families of, of plants, we have about 15,000 which makes it quite incredible for a small space. So in terms of the richness of the species has also played an important part, we suspect, in attracting some of these bird life back here. As you know, Singapore is actually part of the Siberia Trans-Australia migratory pathways and birds always pass by Singapore as they overwinter uh, up north. And we built a nature area called Sungai Bolo up north, uh, which is actually a, a more wilderness area. But increasingly, we are noticing some of these birds also stop by. Actually. So I think this is something quite incredible that we have created. How much diversity do you have among the plant life here? Do you have plants from every corner of the globe? And what sort of thought goes into what plants you can successfully cultivate here? Yeah. So this is a great question. I think, as you are aware, this uh, notion of botanic gardens is uh, a germplasm to preserve plants for future generations. And I think we are, uh, in fact, uh, first and foremost, in fact, a botanic gardens. It's part of our role to preserve uh, the germplasm, not just within Singapore. 
and uh, the founding CEO of Gardens by the Way, Dr. Kiet Tan, our first vision is to bring the world of plants at one place for people to enjoy. In order to do that, within the tropical region, uh, zone 12 and zone 13 of plant life, for the plant fanatics, you will understand what I meant. Uh, essentially, the equatorial belt. In Singapore, you know, a lot of the rain trees that you see outdoors are actually come from Central America and different parts of the world. So we, we do go to these places uh, very early on to take some of the species and, and transport them here for people to see. But beyond that, unlike in Australia, we are not in the four seasons zone. So we also want uh, Singaporeans uh, living here to experience things like cherry blossom, tulips, and so we also take pains, which is why the conservatories was constructed, uh, essentially to house some of these, uh, to extend the reach of geographical areas. So Flower Dome, where I'm sitting right now, you will see every two months there will be a change of the display. We have a dahlias in Australia. In fact, we also get bulbs in Australia for some of these spring flowering plants, then followed by tulips, followed by uh, cherry blossom, orchids, and right now, of poisintias. So this is typically a Mediterranean climate. Then, of course, the sister dome, which is the one next door, cloud forest, talks about this uh, tropical montane, which is um, uh, plants in the highlands above the cloud forest which also allows us to extend the habitats into a tropical place that Singapore would not be able to showcase. It must be great being able to present Singaporeans with plants that they wouldn't normally see. I mean, it must be quite surreal to come in here and see a cherry blossom blooming. That's exactly spot on. Uh, I remember the first year where we did uh, tulips, just like in Kuchenhof in the Netherlands. Uh, the queue coming into the Flower Dome was two hours and people were seeing fields of uh, tulips. I go to Australia in Canberra, you, you have your flower festivals and it's also tulips. But here it's uh, extremely special because uh, these are plants that traditionally you do not associate with tropical Singapore. And when we did the cherry blossom show, uh, and even today you see uh, some Singaporean families, some of the grandchildren pushing in, in a wheelchair, their grandparents here. We guarantee Singaporeans that every year, 1st of March, thereabouts, cherry blossom will be in bloom. So our horticulturists work around the clock to make sure that they, they flower just like in Japan and in Australia. People can enjoy. So that's something that we are quite proud of. In fact, we are doing this for the seventh or eighth year right now. And uh, every year we extend the show. It used to be just a, a floral show. Now I think we bring in other elements like culture, history, uh, art. Uh, so we partner with embassies like the Japanese embassies to do Japanese tea ceremony and you know the uh, different food. Singaporeans are you know, big fans of food, all with the hope of enchanting our visitors and then hopefully they develop a really intimate journey with us on green because at the end of the day, our calling is to share the love of nature and the respect for environment with, with everyone else and that's what we hope to do. You mentioned net zero emissions earlier on and I'm, I'm keen to know about the sustainability efforts that you're taking in the Gardens by the Bay and how you are, are working towards achieving net zero. As I mentioned earlier, when we first started the gardens, I think the early pioneers were all very green. Many of these uh, green technology were embedded in the construction of gardens by the bay. Uh, we take, say, this flower dome where I'm in. Uh, the glass that you see over there is a double glaze, which uh, reflects 40-50% of the infrared or the, the non-photosynthetic part of the light zone uh, back out so that the heats don't get trapped here. All of course with the purpose of trying to be very mindful the uh, energy footprint that requires to power this greenhouse. 
Uh, apart from that, we are probably one of the few, maybe the only installation at that time that we don't take electricity from the grid. In fact, we have our own biomass using a renewable energy source, horticultural waste. We burn it. In fact, every evening, lorry loads of um, trucks carrying wood chips. And these are wood chips because uh, Singapore is a garden city. Trees need a haircut uh, more than maybe in Australia because equatorial, so they grow quite fast. So they will trim these branches and bring it here, and which is uh, burned off to generate electricity to power the greenhouses. So the greenhouse itself is entirely green technology. And then, of course, you know, this is the largest greenhouse, right? So it actually costs quite a fair bit of energy consumption. In fact, only the first two meters of where we are seated here is cooled uh, because they use a chill beam technology where they're using conduction underneath the floor to just chew the first two meters of it, essentially for pedestrian comfort as well as uh, for the plants. Uh, anything further above there is actually room temperature. There are air vents there that let the excess heat uh, goes off. Uh, so that's one, the kind of green technology we use. The other one is our super trees, uh, which I think uh, most uh, overseas visitors would be quite familiar with a spot that people take pictures of. The super trees mimics a real tree. The designers were inspired by the tall cowrie trees in Western Australia. There were critics that say it's very gimmicky, but in fact, we wanted it uh, right at the start to be an icon of sustainability. On top of the super trees are actually solar panels. If you think deeper about it, trees are like solar panels. The grid that traps sunlight that produces food. And so the solar panels on top of the super trees actually generate electricity as well, and they power the lights that uh, you see in pictures whenever people take off it. So all in all, our renewable sources, both from the solar energy as well as from this uh, biomass plant generate about 30 to 35 percent of our total energy needs. We think we can do more mainly because you know Singapore we, we don't have large tracts of equatorial forests to conserve and all that. We are show garden. We are very conscious that our responsibility is in public education. Uh, 40 million visitors pass through our gates and so it will be a missed opportunity if uh, they don't come in and their lives are not changed, not touched and, and wanting to do their part for nature. Singapore government has set down a target as a country level to reach net zero by 2050. We think we can hopefully do better than that as a role model. So currently we are drawing out a sustainability plan, in fact a net zero plan, to see whether we can bring that earlier than 2050. And part of it involved in mitigating and trying to deal with a shortfall of about maybe 60%. So we are now in talks with potential partners to see whether we can build a second renewable energy plant to supply the, the rest of the shortfall. We hope we can get there. We hope we'll be able to do our part for the environment. I don't often see botanical gardens that uh, skew so much towards being a tourist attraction as well and having to, to balance those sort of things. I mean, I've, I've been through plenty of botanical gardens and there aren't many, for example, not criticising, that charge entry fee. And so you've got the consideration of, of what the visitors want. You've got so many visitors that come here, but at the same time, I know that you're a horticulturalist at training and you've got a consideration of the plants. It's, it's almost like you know a zoo needs to balance the comfort of the animals as well as the comfort of the visitors as well. How do you juggle that? What considerations do you think that you need to address as managing a gardens of this scale? That's really a fantastic question. I think on, on day one, someone said that we are the new generation of, of botanic gardens, uh, almost like Walt Disney 
currently with our visitorship of 14 million. Now, our first year was 2 million, and every year the visitorship keep growing by 2 million. It's just amazing numbers. And people tell me that, oh, with the amazing numbers, my counterparts from Walt Disney come and visit us and say that you are in our category. When Dr. Tan first created this, Singapore already have a first botanic gardens, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, handed to us since our colonial days. Functioning as what the botanic gardens do, uh, conservation, taxonomy, uh, public education. I think when this garden was created, I think the pioneers wanted to reach out to uh, people who are not plant fanatics, uh, interested in the scientific names of certain species and all that, but more the general layperson and hopefully get them interested in plants and start the journey of green. So that was how it was started. At the same time, the Singapore government, being very wise, uh, also didn't want us to be a public garden that's always a cost center. You know, most botanic gardens, I, I guess, are usually state-funded. The budget keeps going up and they find a way to sustain it. At the end of the day, it's about financial sustainability as well. So we were set up as a not-for-profit company from day one. Uh, which means that uh, the government gives me a certain grant. In fact, there's only sufficient for a quarter of my operating total operating expenses. And the other three quarters, I have to find ways and means to uh, generate. And, and in a way, now looking back last 10 years, this has a blessing. It forces us constantly to innovate, constantly keep our pulses to what clientele is telling us, what they want to see. And uh, so far, actually, it's quite amazing. Uh, from that small gate charge, it's sufficient to pay for not just the domes, but as well for the 101 hectares of outdoor gardens that we have, which is quite amazing. I call it a, a virtuous cycle of uh, cross-subsidization, meaning that we earn a little bit of revenue from our tourist dollars, and with the finances, we are able to do many of these public programs, which is uh, free to Singaporeans and overseas visitors. In fact, uh, every evening, if you have the opportunity, I don't know whether last evening you, you, you came to our light and sound show, the super trees will, will light up and do this song and dance. And uh, we are going to have Christmas Wonderland and uh, different festivals in our outdoor gardens. Uh, they are all free to the public. In fact, 95% of the gardens is not gated. Only 5%, which is the two conservatories, uh, because of the maintenance of the higher cost of operations, we collect that charge and, and use that money to cross-subsidize. So that has always been the formula we are quite proud of. In terms of uh, managing the tension, yes, you rightly pointed out, this is run like a hybrid between an attraction and a garden. Like right now, you're coming on a weekday, this is really beautiful. You see many people sitting and just uh, chatting by the benches inside the conservatories. Uh, we don't chase people away because in the garden, you want people to smell the roses, enjoy themselves, take their time. But on the other hand, if you take a look at the attractions part of it, uh, there is a flow. You do want people to push through the gates because otherwise there will be a backlog of people. So that's one tension. In terms of offerings, we also have been quite careful and selective in who we partner with. So, for example, Avatar, you know, this is our first time with Walt Disney, having a major attraction and people ask me, you know, oh, you have now become, you know, all these team attractions. And, and so I said that, no, no, if you have watched the movie, you will know that behind it is a very serious message. It's about respect for nature, respect for environment, respect for everyone. 
So this is a narrative that resonates and is in alignment with what we do and what we believe in. So I think that's the worthy partner. We have also received many other offers like electronic games and currently everybody can see we have a throughput of 14 million. So uh, uh, people see there's a commercial opportunity. But some of these we say, hey, look, we'll be a bit more careful because I don't think it's in line with our values and what we hope to do. So horticulture is what we do and what we believe in and what we want to share. So that's one. The other one, of course, is being community centric. Uh, so we do a lot of programs that's very community and making sure the uh, maximum number of people are accessible and they can come and enjoy themselves. Yeah. Finally, what is, uh, in your view, one plant that everyone should see that they don't always see around Gardens by the Bay? Um, it's not a very spectacular plant. I always like to tell the story of the olive tree. Yeah. You have olive in Australia, but they're Mediterranean plant, of course. It requires 8 degrees and below. Horticulture will tell you as underneath 8 degrees, there's this called a chilling uh, threshold. And after that, they will flower. And most plants uh, abide by that. And so the same with olive trees. Uh, but here in the conservatories, our lowest temperature uh, we can press it down, it's about 12 degrees. It can't go lower than that because it wasn't built for it. In fact, when we were doing cherry blossoms, we were actually pushing it as close as it is to breaking point because it can't go further. But for olives, it requires 8 degrees. So that's one particular tree that every year they will flower and fruit. And that particular one is because underneath, coincidentally, there's an aircon chiller. So that particular one is uh, slightly colder than the rest. But that's not all. I used to host um, head of states and many from, from, from Europe. And uh, some of them, uh, they are familiar with the olive trees. And olives are wind-pollinated plants. And in fact, one head of state who is an olive grove owner was very sharp to tell me, in your domes here, there's no wind, there's no drought. You know? So how do you get them to uh, pollinate and fertilize? My creative staff, uh, what they do is every morning before they open shop at 9 o'clock, they will bring this giant fence underneath the olive and blow, then we will have the olive. And in a way, that represents the Singapore story, who we are and what we do. You know, the movie Crazy Rich Asians, I always tell people we are not rich, but maybe a little bit crazy. We like to challenge ourselves. And in a way, Singapore is a small little red dog and we have to use our small little brains constantly to give nature a helping hand and to create and recreate back the original Eden that we have lost. So this is something that we hope we can touch our visitors when they come in and hopefully they also will bring that little bit of green that they have studied and become more responsible citizens of the international community. That was Felix Lowe, Chief Executive Officer of the Gardens by the Bay in Singapore and you have been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University and you can follow us on Twitter, we are at La Trobe Asia. This podcast is produced at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.